Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a podcast in which we talk about a film and television podcast. God, it's been a while. <laughs> a, a film and television podcast which we talk about a topic which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week uh, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's the uh, creator and host of the Bad Spot podcast, the co-creator of this here podcast, Matt's back on the menu, boys. It's Matt Risby. Hi, Matt. How's it going? <laughs> Matt's back on the menu. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm thrilled to be here, and there is a kind of a nice symmetry to it, given that the very last episode that you and I recorded was all the way back in 2019, when. Uh, Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker convinced me I just don't want to do this anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is, yeah, which is you know that's kind of where we left off. And it, I mean, it was you know it was a great eight years, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. it did feel like uh, it was uh, there was a certain amount of catharsis in that episode that we kind of let out a lot of a lot of anguish. I did listen to it actually a couple of months ago, out of kind of like curiosity, and we were we were pretty angry. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't uh, listened to that back since I edited it. Um, but yeah, I remember just really hating <laughs> that movie a lot. Yeah, <laughs> just being very yeah. dispirited by it. Yeah, and that 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 whole that whole incident, we'll call it the episode <laughs> nine incident. I mean, that really soured <laughs> the kind of modern Star Wars. Uh, for me quite significantly mm-hmm. and um, I'm just pleased now to be back at the table talking about something positive um, in regards to to kind of uh, post Disney Star Wars. Yes uh, because we are going to be talking uh, at length about Andor the Disney plus streaming show created by Tony Gilroy uh, which follows the character of Cassian Andor played by Diego Luna who was previously introduced in the movie Rogue One which I haven't listened back to our episode on it when we talked about that, but I remember us both being sort of positive on that movie. Yeah, I, I think I've grown more positive on it the more times I've seen it. I think mm-hmm. when I first saw it, I was like, "Oh man, this is this is a mess." And then yeah. the last the last hour is pretty breathtaking, and you know some of the better Star Wars. But that the, that first kind of like uh, hour setup is 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 kind of clunky, and you can tell that. A lot of it was was reshot and rewritten very hastily. Mm. Yeah, that's mainly my memory of it is like it being a movie that had a lot of really interesting ideas, mm-hmm. but not necessarily coherent. And then, yeah, obviously, yeah, some great action sequences at the end, which I think, I, mean, I think the, the the production history of that movie is is somewhat murky. But I think Tony Gilroy was responsible for a lot of the stuff in the back half of that when the, they essentially chucked Gareth Edwards out of the director's chair and said, someone else needs to finish this movie. He turned um, up like uh, like Winston Wolfe in Pulp Fiction to <laughs> to, to fix the uh, the dead corpse. The dead corpse? The corpse on the back seat mm-hmm. of the car. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I guess we should... First off, we should probably say, there's probably going to be spoilers uh, for this. We'll be oh, talking yeah. about the the show uh, and the events of the show and why it's good, which... Uh, so if you haven't watched Andor, recommend you watch it. It's very good. So yes, yeah, so that's just a blanket spoiler warning. We're going to be talking about the show, uh, about the events of the show. But uh, I think yeah, we should probably establish first off uh, our feelings um, going into Andor. I certainly was very skeptical of Andor when it was announced because I think I think it was probably announced like what three or four years ago or something, mm-hmm. and 
just the idea of like, oh, they're doing a spin-off from what was already a spin-off about a character who is played by a very charismatic actor, but who like didn't leap off the screen when I was watching Rogue One particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, that seemed strange to me. And then after that, Rise of Skywalker happens, and I basically <laughs> uh, swear off Star Wars mm-hmm. um, pretty much in its entirety for the next three years. I don't really engage with any of the shows. Occasionally, I'll dip into one like watch Mandalorian or whatever to see what people are talking about. But for the most part, I have like really disengaged from that stuff because I was just so burnt out on Star mm-hmm. Wars stuff after Rise of Skywalker. So um, I was very, very skeptical about. Um, and or as a as a as a as a proposal before watching it uh, where where do you come into this matt um well i mean our our reactions to to episode nine were, were very similar mm-hmm. um i um used used to watch the star wars movies uh the the original trilogy and then latterly the first two movies of the sequel trilogy i kind of watched them annually uh, as like a christmas tree or whatever i haven't i haven't done that since uh, the rise of skywalker i know it was only kind of a couple of years ago but i've i just feel too too like deflated i think is the uh, i think like obviously it's easy to be angry about it and i kind of was uh, and it's easy to be like kind of disappointed about it but it was just like it was just so dispiriting to see and mm. it kind of just kind of sucked all the the uh um, the enjoyment out of the movies for me um and that's fine because like you know most of star wars is bad right like there's <laughs> there's a lot of star wars and star wars is for everybody you're there are going to be people who love the bits that i dislike and they dislike the bits that i love and that's fine because there's a lot of it out there and there's just stuff that you can find and i think uh patrick willems did a like a really good um video on on uh, the rise of Skywalker where he said mm. uh, he's just, he's just realized that, you know, he got excited about the, the sequel trilogy, you know, episode seven, whilst it's got its, you know, its problems and its obvious flaws, it kind of set the table in, in a very kind of um, intriguing way. And, and it kind of was a very enjoyable movie uh, and then kind of handed the reins to Ryan Johnson, who kind of made this weird blockbuster, which made you think, Oh, this, this could be something genuinely different and interesting. And then, you know, people, didn't want that and then we got rise of skywalker which kind of is um kind of undoes all that work and 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 kind of gives us something kind of just like deeply unsatisfying and i think patrick Williams said yeah it's he's realized that at the moment star wars isn't for him and that's fine because something else will come around mm. and for me i kind of watched each show as they came with apprehension with the the kind of feeling that okay maybe this one might be for me um and i watched the mandalorian and i thought it was fine <laughs> it was good it was um mm. like the first season was solid and then the second season proved that it wasn't for me because they weren't particularly interested in telling a new interesting story they just wanted to show us old things that we remembered from star wars and then the same thing continued the book of boba fett is pretty poor mm. um and i think when i saw that i was like i don't really know how much <laughs> how much more i can do with this because you know life's pretty short um and then obi-wan came out and i was like i'll give it a go because ewan mcgregor is a good actor and he's you know he 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 is 
lost in the sequel in the prequel trilogy as you know someone trying his best to give a good performance in three dreadful movies and i thought maybe he could do something interesting with the character and he that show doesn't really deliver on what it could have done which is disappointing so after that i was like i'm not really that bothered about andor Mm. and i wasn't particularly i like rogue one and i like diego luna but i there wasn't anything particularly compelling me to watch it but then i think about a week before it came out disney plus released a short clip and it was the scene where he meets uh luthan for the first time in when he's ex- trying to exchange that kind of the MacGuffin that he's stolen from the empire mm-hmm. and just hearing that dialogue when he's talking about you know when he asked him how did you get into the uh, the empire's um you know secure facility and just take it and he said i just walked in and you know i was like this this doesn't sound or feel like star wars dialogue this doesn't and it was kind of directed in a way that kind of made it feel kind of immediate and kind of a little bit edgy and kind of tense and i was like used to watching these shows that they've been putting out that look feel a bit flat against the volume because you've got yeah. like people who could who are basically in a shed and you know I've, i honestly i think the volume is a great piece of technology and can be really good but when you make a show exclusively on the volume um it can feel a little claustrophobic and obi-wan is a, is a good example of how it, it kind of kind of works against it i like i like how with the volume it's like we've kind of gone all the way around with technology to people thinking oh back projection is pretty yeah, cool yeah let's do a, a smarter version of the that. rear projection yeah but when i saw that thing uh i saw that uh that, that that scene watched it and i was like okay i'm i'm sold on the idea and then they they did the smart thing of releasing the first three episodes all at once because i think mm. that because the show is a slow burn had they released one and then you've got to wait a week for the next part it might i think a, a lot of people did bounce off it anyway um yeah and I'll kind of come to why in a bit later. Um, but I watched those three episodes back to back and I thought, finally, whilst I accept, and to kind of quote Patrick Williams again, like Star Wars is a series of films about space wizards made for children. <laughs> I, I, I genuinely believe that is true and I believe that is the way it should be. It is refreshing to have a story told in this universe made by and for adults. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think it is also nice to see, and this isn't just in terms of Star Wars, I think in terms of pop culture, filmmaking more generally, something that is, you know, gritty and dark or whatever and has those kind of buzzwords, but isn't joyless Mm -hmm. because that has been the de facto mode, I think, for a lot of franchise filmmaking in basically since the dark knight came out mm-hmm. like people or, or even or i guess the dark knight is probably a better place to point to than the kind of like batman begins because that was such a huge hit mm-hmm. and i think it really did confirm in the minds of a lot of people that if you want to be taken seriously you have to make something that's kind of like dark and oppressive whereas um i think with andor what's quite nice is that while it is dealing in like very weighty themes and you know it has real world relevance and a lot of the things it's invoking and and the the stuff it talks about and you know it's very concerned with things like bureaucracy and the administrative state in a fascist universe and things like that Mm -hmm. um it also has like a big heist and Mm -hmm. escapes and um it has 
jokes and it has all these sort of things you think oh yeah this is like how you make something that is kind of big entertaining uh filmmaking but also you know is not just kind of like lowest common denominator pandering and to me that is also like genuinely very earnest uh instead of you know de facto kind of like jokey as well Mm, yeah it's refreshing like since the marvel movies became popular i don't know if you've heard of them um Mm, like writing now just like just it's just quips isn't it (laughs) that's all it is it's quips and then action scenes and then more quips and it's kind of it was really refreshing to see something written and structured and shot and executed like an like an actual movie mm-hmm. um and yeah it, i think it says a lot to how indentured we have become to modern blockbuster filmmaking and 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 i think now in especially in the last five years and it was really interesting when we started this show like streaming was in its infancy we were still mm. having dvds digital versatile discs posted to us through a letterbox by a, by, by a man <laughs> with a red bag who wasn't a santa um but he was he was giving stuff and we were watching them on on discs if you can believe such a thing and we kind of watched this develop over the 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 kind of lifespan of, of the show but in the last five years there's been a real shift away from franchise filmmaking or blockbuster filmmaking being about, hey, we're going to make a movie that's tied to a property and perhaps there's going to be scope to make more of them if people like it and we'll leave the door open to what is described in kind of like marketing buzzword awfulness as contiguous storytelling, which is what Mm. uh, Kathleen Kennedy said they when she announced that they were going to move away from doing trilogies for Star Wars and they were going to focus on contiguous storytelling, basically, you know, a kind of a seamless blend between their TV shows and their movies or telling one big story. And I'm not sure that's a good idea <laughs> because mm. the thing is, it, it, it has kind of made so much of uh, the kind of studio's output and this media that they're putting out. It's, it's just basically turned it into content which is not really what you want art to be is it and i know we're not talking about like high art these are kind of you know superhero movies or like you know science fiction movies or whatever not that those things can't be art but anyway um they're making things that are essentially just they just exist to reinforce a brand identity and to get you to watch the next thing and the problem that we've got with that is that unless you've done hundreds of hours of homework some of it becomes borderline unwatchable. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, my wife loves Star Wars, right? She mm. really does. She loves the movies and everything. We watched The Mandalorian. She liked The Mandalorian. And then we got into The Mandalorian Season 2. And we're talking about a TV show here which has spun off two separate TV shows from it using characters that appear in it for continuous amounts of time in the second season. And in the second season, uh, there's a like a one episode where Ahsoka Tano turns up, right? Ahsoka Tano is a character from the Clone Wars. I'm explaining this to you now uh, in the way that I had to pause the show and explain this <laughs> to my wife. Because it's not like she's just a character who turns up and they explain it. They don't say anything because mm-hmm. you should know. Because, and you know, this is a, a trend in, in kind of modern media consumption fandoms do not want stories and characters and you know to think about things they want to be rewarded for their accumulated trivia 
And that's been said before, and I'm saying it again. That is something that is true. So Ahsoka Tano turns up. I have to pause. I have to explain who Ahsoka Tano is. That doesn't take too long. Then Ahsoka Tano does her thing, and then, you know, spoilers. She says to another character that we've just met, um, where is Grand Admiral Thrawn? And the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the whole show grinds to a halt, and people practically look into the camera as if this big, like, dun-dun-dun moment. I take a big, exasperated breath in, because that's exciting <laughs> to me, because I know what that means. And my wife is like, what the fuck is happening? And I then, not only have I had to explain who Ahsoka Tano is, I then have to wind back, right? I have to explain most of the Clone Wars. I have to explain the last two seasons of Star Wars Rebels. Then I have to, <laughs> then I have to dip into the Thrawn trilogy of books mm-hmm. and, like, explain why this is important. And... My wife's just sitting there saying, I can't, I can't be bothered with this. This is, this is too much. And like, like this just brings the show and the storytelling to a grinding halt unless you are heavily invested in this and know all of these things. Mm. And it's become a, like a bit of a joke that the Star Wars uh, shows, um, I think, I can't remember who wrote it, but they said, um, I think it was a tweet, but then it's since been kind of taken on as a shorthand. Star Wars shows are everyone waiting for gulp shitto to turn up and then people <laughs> clap. So, and and that is and that is kind of true because you've you've seen on YouTube and stuff now there is this kind of cottage industry of Star Wars content creators who are filming reactions to themselves of seeing Luke Skywalker turn up and do a cool thing, and mm. it's all about kind of seeing those things and reacting to those things and 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 not being interested in fresh ideas new things and stories it's about being shown star wars and that is why this is me going the long way around to saying mm. that is why andor is good because it is not interested in um fan service or just showing you things you remember it is trying mm-hmm. to tell a story about interesting uh, characters in captivating situations with real stakes, real drama and real tension, rather than just saying, hey, look, remember this guy? Yeah. <laughs> and like, because after a while, like, and the thing is, like, you know, someone turns up in Star Wars that I recognize. I'm like, hey, that's cool. But like, it doesn't mean anything, really. It's just a thing that you're showing me and I remember it. And it's. It's nice for um, a show like Andor to be about something. And the thing is, with all the Star Wars stuff that has come out since Rise of Skywalker, all the TV stuff, hasn't been about anything. It has been about Star Wars. It's been mm-hmm. about showing you Star Wars and showing you stuff you remember and doing it in such a kind of clumsy way that it excites people who are like, hey, I remember this guy. And uh, it kind of just puts a lot of people off. Um, but the thing is, is it excites way more people than it puts off. And you know what corporations are like when they find that people like a thing, they're going to keep doing a thing. And I think that is why some people have bounced off Andor. And I think it's when you commit to something being about something, anyone who watches it has to have a, an opinion on it. You you mm. can't if it's about something you can't just let it wash over you like this is just Star Wars put it in my eyes and I think that some people are going to go this is about something I'm not interested in or some people are going to say this is about something I am interested in but instantly you've divided the audience into portions whereas before if you're like hey just look at this people just soak it up and they engage with the content on the most surface level you can imagine. And it's just refreshing to have 
an actual story that's captivating and interesting and is like an actual film <laughs> not because and that, that's the thing is that like a lot of i don't want to sound like martin scorsese here because obviously he and i are equals but mm -hmm. like some of the modern and as much as i do enjoy like marvel movies and i do enjoy like you know kind of this kind of stuff but like some of them are barely even films they're just showing you things you want to happen to people you recognize and i think we've we've kind of lost a little something and Andor kind of brings it back. And I don't know whether that's just me being an old guy saying, I remember when things all looked like <laughs> the Godfather. Um, but that's how it feels. And, and if it, it, it feels like, and I don't mean this in a, in a, in a dismissive way, it feels like it's made for grownups, not for, you know, people who just want that dopamine hit of seeing Kit Fisto or whatever. Hmm. Yeah, I think as well, the funny thing was like, you know, the, the things, the times they do reference things of, from the broader Star Wars universe is always funny. Like, you know, obviously they have to reference the Emperor, Emperor because mm -hmm. a big part of the story takes place within the Imperial bureaucracy. And it'd be weird if they weren't talking about their boss um, at some point. But also like the only other times I think of that I really noticed a, a kind of notable reference to a thing in the broader Star Wars universe was in the final episode, Mon Martha makes a reference to Canto Bite. Which is obviously mm -hmm. the uh, casino from um, the Last Jedi, mm -hmm. and I kind of thought, oh, that's nice. Like that's the only that's the level of kind of engagement with Star Wars as a broader thing is like, okay, we'll drop in references here because you know this is a big universe and there have been lots of stories told in it, and there's lots of things you can reference, but we're not gonna like grind things to a halt just to um, you know have a character show up who you're familiar with or whatever. Um, mm. And when a character does show up, they are familiar with, like, obviously, Mon Mothma, a very mm -hmm. significant character in the Star Wars canon, um, and given a lot more to do here than she has in any of the other kind of filmed media. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like, she's a, she's a character. She has an arc. She is her relationship to the rebellion, both as an actual thing that is being assembled and to the notion of rebellion as an idea, is explored in some detail. It's not like. Uh, you know the story the the show was about a completely unrelated other senator and then at one point Mon Mothma walked in and had a scene and then you never saw her again mm. um, also um, you're talking about continuous storytelling as well I think uh, an interesting other example of that is I did, did you see the second Doctor Strange movie? I did yes I thought I enjoyed that I thought it had lots of fun San Raimi stuff in it mm -hmm. but what I thought was interesting in that was that was a case of contiguous storytelling really going against a movie because i watched that having not watched any of wandavision mm -hmm. so i watched it and i thought oh this is quite fun you know they're making um scarlet witch into a villain and you know i think she's very compelling i think they're giving her an interesting reason to be doing all the things that she's doing in this movie and then everyone who watched on wandavision was like they fucking sold her <laughs> out she was they like mistreated this character so badly and i think that that's kind of the the flip side of it is that when you do kind of commit to contiguous storytelling where you have all these different media informing each other, anytime anyone tries to do something different or where they're basically saying, ah, this is kind of where I see this story going. I think in the case of um, Doctor Strange, because they're always working on like loads of things simultaneously, there's probably a fairly decent chance that they had no idea what was going to happen on WandaVision whilst they were making that movie. So they probably yeah. didn't really have a clue like how that was going to shape that and how people would respond to the way that uh, they treated Wanda in that movie. Um, 
yeah, that can be a problem as opposed to just like you're saying, you make a movie, it's a success, you can make, you make another one, and then you kind of go from there and you build it, as opposed to just having all these interconnecting pieces that can clash with each other. In terms of the, the show's structure, obviously we've been talking about it, um, kind of saying that it's kind of like a movie. One of the things that I think is really refreshing about it as well, in terms of the streaming landscape, is that one of the most dreaded phrases in, um, in media over the last sort of 10 years or so like you know the peak tv phrase is like oh we're not treating this like a tv show we're treating it like an eight-hour movie or whatever <laughs> which is usually just means we don't know how to make yeah. a tv show yeah. we're gonna make seven episodes that are really fucking dull and then something maybe will happen and then the show will end and then you mm-hmm. have to wait a year for the next season to start and you play the whole game again yeah. whereas what i like about Andor is that it isn't doing that. Basically, it is, you know, essentially four feature-length movies and then, you know, one little one-off where um, Andor goes on holiday. Mm-hmm. And I think that work, that to me is so um, so satisfying because like you say, they released the first three episodes as a single uh, block. So you got to watch something that was essentially a two-hour movie where you were introduced to the character, you, were, you got a sense of his world, you know, he's this... Um, essentially this kind of like low-level criminal living out in this part of the universe that the Empire doesn't bother with too much on Ferrix. Um, and he's just trying to eke out a living. Things are kind of starting to break bad for him in a major way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end of the episode, he has to escape. Uh, at the end of the, the third episode, he has to escape. So you have this really neat little structure where first two episodes are introducing the character, raising the stakes, then suddenly you get like an episode that's big action set pieces, uh, characters being introduced and meeting each other. And then the next three episodes, it's like, okay, now it's going to be about them planning this heist and carrying out this heist and things like that. And I just found that structure to be really compelling week to week because you really felt as if it was building to something and then you were getting not quite instant gratification, but like enough gratification that you thought okay i'm gonna have to sit through so two episodes are gonna be slow burn and then i'm gonna get like one of the best episodes of television i've seen in recent years mm-hmm. and i much prefer that to the netflix model of you're going to get seven or eight episodes where very little happens and then the show will end and then you have to hope that they deliver on all the stuff they promised in a year's time mm. Yeah, it, it does make me laugh when they're like, we've made an eight-hour movie, because I always think, you've made a movie that's too long, <laughs> um, and yeah, I don't the, want uh, to see that. Yeah, it's it's you know it's the equivalent of, uh, this meeting could have been an email, this yeah. TV show could have been a movie. Well, well, um, the Obi-Wan show was very much yes. uh, the uh, <laughs> definition of the, um, the, the meeting that could have been an email, um, because that was a 90-minute movie squeezed into six hours, and mm. it really really kind of showed and it's really interesting actually the structure of of andor where it has these kind of like slow builds hugely tense um episodes and this then this kind of like slow gradual release of that tension and then before it starts to build up again and it's it's like the the show had a very deliberate tempo and it was it was building overall to something and you know that that yes. great that great last episode of the the Rick's road was mm-hmm. was building to this this bottleneck this kind of choke point but in that you had 
you know, two kind of mini arcs, essentially the, the prison arc and the, the, the heist arc. Yeah. Um, in addition to the, the, the kind of setup, like you say, with the, with the, the, the holiday episode in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I thought it was a really interesting way of approaching that because when you have something that is, because people complained about it being slow paced and I kind of kept saying, it's not slow paced. It's, it is deliberately paced and there is a difference between those two things mm. and that deliberate pacing really rewards the structure of taking your time to build something up taking your time to get to know the situation and what's happening the stakes um not being confused by where everything's going like if, if you watch the book of boba fett or, or obi-wan kenobi like they are all over the place and you would be you know forgiven for not really knowing why people were going places or what they're doing where in in andor it is abundantly clear and not only is it like spelling it out for the audience or for those in the cheap seats there's is giving you the reasons why everything's happening and it's it's and those reasons are all very compelling and and it makes the payoff of that rise in tension and then release um all the more satisfying mm. and i think it gives enough for all of the characters to do that you are constantly engaged in their stories like the character of um Cyril Khan played mm-hmm. by uh, uh Kyle Soller who is you know this wannabe bootlicker fascist who works in initially in this you know independent security company essentially that that works on Ferrix uh pursues his job with too much fervor <laughs> um after his boss tells him like we don't really care that this guy has killed two of our men because they were in a place they shouldn't have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, kind of gets, you know, kicked back home and, you know, kind of becomes a drone. And then, you know, you, you, you do follow his arc and you do become, you become invested in it. Obviously you don't want him to succeed because he's, he's reprehensible, <laughs> but mm-hmm. like um, there was an interview with Tony Gilroy. I think it was in, it was with starwars.com. I think he did one recently with them where he basically like it talked about how he writes his villains where he essentially says, you know, I can't really write black and white characters. I've always been, I've always believed in every villain I've ever written. Mm-hmm. And I really like that ethos, the way that you really do get a sense that all of the villainous characters that he writes in this, um, and you know, his team, um, they all feel like people who have really genuine, authentic motivations for the things that they're doing. They're not all, cardboard or they're not being you know forced into this situation where the plot requires them to do these things regardless of whether or not they make sense um not to go back to the rise of skywalker but like you know uh with donald gleason's character where he just suddenly turns around and says i'm the spy <laughs> and it's just kind of like what <laughs> why is any of this happening i don't understand why uh anything in this movie is occurring um Oh, also, uh, yeah, we've we've ragged on the rise of Skywalker somewhat, and we probably will again. But mm-hmm. um, I just want to say, Babu Frick uh, is innocent. He's a lovely, <laughs> sweet boy. Glad, you know, he did nothing wrong. Um, he did probably storm the Capitol, though. Um, I'm pretty sure he's a, he's guilty of that. Him and yeah. Jay Johnston um, went went together. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I think that's one of the things about it as well that was was very refreshing. Like it, it like you say, it is deliberate. But it feels as if every single scene in this show has a purpose towards advancing the plot, the character, the themes, and it never feels as if 
they're just hanging around and watching people do Star Wars stuff because it's Star Wars stuff. Yeah, it's interesting that you were like, you know, we we're not rooting for for Cyril because he's reprehensible. There there is a moment in in uh, I think right in the middle of the season where you're like. Oh, I wish Dedra would get one over on her rival in the ISB, and then you're like, she's in the fucking Gestapo. <laughs> <laughs> like, what am I? What? And, and like, it's not like she's even a sympathetic character. It's yeah. just it's done so well that you're like, oh man, that guy's a real. He's a real asshole. He's one of the bad Gestapo. And <laughs> I really wish that she, you know, I want her to succeed over him. And then you're like, yeah. I, I, what? And then but yeah, yeah he's, then... he's one of the bad Gestapo because he doesn't <laughs> recognize how like serious a threat the rebellion is. Yeah. Why aren't they listening to her? She understands they need to be crushed. No, what? <laughs> like I said, well, it's nuance, isn't it? You know, that's yeah. that's you know how you how you write a villain. Like, and the thing is, is that like you know, Star Wars has got great villains in it over the over the years. Um, some not so good, but like it's very black and white, isn't it? And like, if you don't know how you feel about the people, the baddies address as Nazis. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, it kind of it tips its uh, hand, and they're all British, so you know that should tell you something. But in this, there's that kind of whole, you know, that bureaucracy, that kind of mundanity of evil that like somewhere yeah. in the engine room of, of this fascist regime, this machine is literally building a giant planet that can blow up other planets um, is, you know, there are people pushing the pencils, doing the paperwork and, and you know, you know, I loved all the stuff where they were like, oh, we've caught the the rebel pilot. And they're like, you know, let's make it go away, like make it like an accident. And then they're setting all these plans and and you're like, like this, this is kind of how these things happen, mm. um, and you know, I don't, th- I don't think, I don't think anyone's really wanting um, Star Wars to show us in in kind of like crippling detail how the Empire works and you know how their supplies work and all this kind of stuff. But it it just feels more real than they're just the bad guys, you know. Yeah, and I think as well, one of the things that the show does really well, and I really liked about it, is it does really show the sort of the gradations or the gradients of fascism Mm -hmm. like you have people there who are true believers which i think cyril kind of is um he's someone who genuinely does want to um explore authoritarian means to the fullest Mm -hmm. but then you have deidre who you kind of look at you think you know she's obviously still fascist but she's also someone who maybe is trying to climb the ladder and she's a woman in a man's world Mm -hmm. so you root for her um but like (laughs) But like this she glass is... ceiling isn't going to smash itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she needs to lace up her jack boots and kick mm-hmm. it in herself. Um, She's got real girl boss energy. Uh, <laughs> I love that for her. I love that for her. <laughs> yeah, let's get a fan cam going. Um, but um, she, uh, it, it does kind of mirror what you know people know about, like. The Nazi state, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in Nazi Germany, there were people who were Nazis because they fervently believed everything that Hitler said. And there were people who did it because uh, it was their job. It was mm-hmm. their job to make sure the state ran. And they were enough removed from the terrible things that were happening that they were able to just go about it. And then they went home to their families and, you know, probably didn't think too much about it. And um, I really like the fact that the show explores that idea like you do get a sense that there are imperial careerists who Mm -hmm. are just doing it because the empire is like they're the biggest uh you know job creator in the galaxy and it's Mm -hmm. where you want to go if you want to you know have a decent standard of living or whatever and that is an interesting thing to explore it's maybe not the thing that obviously it's not the thing that necessarily you would want to make the center point of the show and and or doesn't but it explores it enough that you kind of feel like okay the people who are making this show 
have fairly concrete ideas about fascism and they want to explore it through the medium of uh, a tv show set in the universe of space wizards that usually mm. uh, is you know is aimed at children yeah um it, i think it's been said quite a lot but like one of the things that's really good about andor is for once it's shown entirely from the point of view of ordinary people it's not mm. there's no um you know chosen ones who are fulfilling a prophecy or destiny to become you know great heirs to a kind of like a, a history bloodline and that actually works on both sides because you know of of the empire we're seeing the ordinary people the people kind of greasing the wheels and, and kind of making them turn mm. rather than the emperor vader or the inquisitors who are out there being kind of like you know big bads like none of those people who gather in their isb office do anything bad to anyone in like in any of the episodes like the, the like we see uh bix gets tortured but they kind of they bring in a ringer for that like they bring in an outsider yeah. uh, a really sinister really sinister guy um and that we get the guy from the triple a league yeah that 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 torture scene is is you know pretty pretty kind of grueling considering there's you know no kind of physical violence involved it's all kind of that psychological yeah horror. but yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. know the the we the most the 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 most action we see from the ISB the baddies the the principal kind of antagonist of the show is there's they're, they're in meetings mm. they're sat around a desk in meetings talking about how um they are kind of like suspecting and trying to crush this rebellion and 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 that's fascinating to me um that 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 is their approach given that like in the previous show the baddies all had, you know, triple bladed lightsabers that they flung around and did flips and spins, which is, you know, we've seen that. It's nice. Yeah. It's nice to see this side of it. I think. Yeah, and I think there is an interesting like cause and effect relationship in that we're seeing the people having the meetings where the bad things will be decided, and then you know, particularly when you know Cassian Andor he goes to the um, planet of Niamos. Um, mm -hmm. Which is essentially Space Miami. Um, Do you know where that's filmed? No, where is it? It's filmed in Cleveland on the Lancashire coast. Wow, I would not have guessed that. that I did not, fantastic. and then I, I saw someone on TikTok saying, "I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to Nemos," and I was like, "Where's this guy going?" And he he goes on the local stopping service train to Manchester, gets on his bike and rides it. Twenty twenty minutes ride from Manchester. Wow, that's amazing. That's yeah, wow. Um, I guess it does kind of have like the faded seaside grammar thing going for it. Yeah, that off-season uh, bleakness. Yeah, as someone who went on a lot of trips to Rill as a child, yeah. I'm very familiar with that vibe. Um, yeah, he goes to Nemos and he uh, under the alias of uh, Keith Gergo, which is <laughs> just the funniest name to me. Like you said, gulp shito earlier. Like, <laughs> Keith Gergo is like a total fake Star Wars yeah. name. It's, it's funnier as well because uh, Carl Weathers' character in The Mandalorian is called Grief Karga. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like okay oh well, okay we're we're still very much it looks like one of the previous like ones they'd crossed out before they got to his final form mm. uh, <laughs> maybe that's the pokemon evolution of grief cargo yeah <laughs> um but uh you know he goes there and then he gets arrested essentially for being in the wrong place at the wrong time um not for the actual crimes he's committed which is is hilarious <laughs> yeah um and then he there's a three episode arc where he's uh, in a prison building something. You know, in the post credit scenes of the season, it's revealed that, that they were building parts of the Death Star, um, which is again a nice little bit of um, 
synchronicity or whatever of where you're essentially saying, oh, he's kind of like building the thing he will one day help destroy. That's quite, mm. that's a nice little touch. And also be killed by. Yes. <laughs> uh, he can't escape the Death Star. It's always yeah. hanging over his whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like there you're essentially seeing, oh, like this is the place that is created because of the decisions of people who are sitting in those boardrooms. They're the ones who decide we need to use slave labor for because that, because that is literally like one of the discussions that they have at one point about you know like cracking down on um crime and like coming up with these longer um sentences and things like that and then that directly impacts uh, uh and or because he gets sentenced to like six years or something because mm-hmm. of the um enhanced sentencing laws that have been introduced and um i think that is also like a great dynamic to explore like the, the Empire is not just kind of like evil in a generic sense, like specific decisions are being made by specific people and then those play out in horrifying ways to you know, real people out in the galaxy. And that mm. is, again, that is an interesting thing to see explored. Yeah. And I think it, it's been said a lot because um, obviously, you know, there's a lot of hot takes floating around uh, about Andor, but it is... A remarkably prescient show um in terms of you know the global situation um and whilst that isn't per se unusual because you know the original trilogy certainly had undertones of being about american imperialism and being about the vietnam war um yeah essentially uh, vietnam but what if, what if the we were telling the stories of the Viet Cong as good guys. Yeah. Um, but like, we're talking about films that were made, you know, 10, 15 years after those things happened. Mm. And I mean, there is also revenge of the Sith in the, in the kind of prequel trilogy. There is, there were kind of deliberate parallels drawn by George Lucas at the time about, you know, the U S government post nine 11 and kind of the, the Patriot act and, and kind of um, governments being given more powers and things like that. But they, they didn't really feel like that's what those things were about. They were just kind of in the background, mm-hmm. but Andor is, is very much a show about radicalization I think mm. and you know we see kind of both sides of that we we see people like Cyril who are you know true believers like you say who are being radicalized into doing what the empire needs you know people like Cyril to do um, and then also we're seeing um and or radicalized into into you know joining a rebellion a revolution we're seeing ordinary people push to the point that they snap and that's what most revolutions start as you know they start when ordinary people decide they've they've had enough and they start to push back but these are all you know these episodes are airing right now when like you know fascism is very much on the rise and people like cyril are you know very much real and present dangers um and, and meeting also... with the former president of the united <laughs> states yes and um you know the the prison scenes were being aired during a time where you know labor movements are starting to gain traction and be suppressed and mm. you know all around the world and you know the finale aired during a world cup where this you know they're being played in stadiums that were built literally by slaves who died doing it uh, in great numbers and you know 
rather than kind of just saying, yo, yeah, you, these things tie to these real world things. Tony Gilroy has explicitly said, you know, this is about lots of different struggles. And, you know, this speaks to and is, is drawn from many different kind of geopolitical situations that are like all totally relevant now. And, and as I'm saying this out loud, I, I still can't believe Disney let them do this. Hmm. Yeah, because again, I think it was in I think it was an interview he did with um, Deadline, maybe, mm-hmm. where someone raised the point to him and says like, "Oh, you know, you know, were you inspired by Ukraine or something?" Which is a stupid thing to say because <laughs> when they would have been making this, like, you know, the Ukraine <laughs> probably hadn't even started. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he talks about saying, "Oh no, you know, like this is drawing on like you know the Haitian Revolution or Palestine or things like that." And when I was watching it, like, I couldn't help but think, you know, there's obviously parallels here between like what britain did in ireland for most of the 20th century or mm-hmm. you know india for you know several hundred years or you know, obviously america um there's a, there's uh, a lot for, lot for me as well I, I i felt like um a lot of kind of like stasi type stuff uh, yes kind of felt like with the isb things and that kind of felt um like drawn directly or it could have almost some of those scenes could have been like from the lives of others or something yes absolutely yeah i definitely felt a lot of parallels to the lives of others uh, in there, which is not something you would expect to say. About <laughs> no, not, not at all. Gulp Shito isn't going to turn up <laughs> in the lives of others. No, he's not going to have a heart-rending scene at the end where he picks up the book and says, this is about me. Yeah, yeah, this is um, about... Or, or um, you know, there's the the arc where they're, they're doing the heist where it all essentially um, hinges upon them going to this planet at the point where there's this great ritual where the native people of the planet go to a certain place to watch um this thing called the eye which is you know this big you know meteor shower that happens overhead and things like that and it's hard not to watch that and not draw parallels to you know what you know the spanish did to huge parts of um south america and you mm-hmm. know to the incas and, and various um and, and aztecs and all the various um societies that existed there or obviously what america did to the native americans where there, there's talk about how they are you know th- this great pilgrimage used to be thousands of people but now they put like you know bars essentially or or, or, or brothels or whatever um along the past to kind of pull people off so by the end it's only like a handful of people and they're, they're slowly trying to crush this way of life under their boot and um it's really interesting to see a show that explores that and that really kind of explores the i guess the real world quote quote um implications of that line that leia has in the original star wars you know like the tighter you 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 make your grasp the more star systems will slip through your fingers mm-hmm. um and it is very much a show about you know what how, how do those star systems um slip through fingers and it's because when you have you know a fascist administrative state which is what the empire is um there's no nuance to it it's all everything is a nail and you know you have a hammer mm-hmm. and so you just essentially have these people in boardrooms in powerful parts of the galaxy saying okay you know we'll just start repressing these people now and people eventually kick back at that um and it is it was really thrilling, particularly you know, in in Rick's Road, the um, finale, seeing that break free, where there's this funeral for uh, Martha uh, Andor's mother, mm-hmm. um, played brilliantly by uh, Fiona Shaw, mm-hmm. where um, at the end, you know, she gives this hologram message where she talks about um, 
Like two pack. A two pack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, where she talks about, you know, like how they need to fight the Empire. And, you know, if she could do it all again, she would get up every day and fight the bastards and all this sort of stuff. Um, and, yeah, it's just really, it was really wonderful seeing a show with this scale of budget, you know, with the might of the Walt Disney Corporation behind it, um, airing weekly and having stuff that was really meaty and worth engaging with in it. Um, mm. And I think that as well, more and more, the shows that I remember and like in the age of streaming are the ones that generate the most interesting writing and discussion around it. And I feel mm. like Andor was definitely one of those like every week there was some fascinating um interview or article to kind of read that would explore the themes yeah and it's um i think the writing of the show because the thing is star wars is is not something that's really ever been known for its writing it's been Mm. known for its kind of the world building and how it feels and you know cool characters and situations but like you know george lucas he's not he's not paddy chayefsky is he let's (laughs) let's be uh let's be kind to him but um the actual writing of this show was, I mean, we kind of briefly touched on it, but like kind of such a cut above, um, not just in a kind of like how writing in a movie should work, um, but how it like got across its ideas and everything. And there was, there was a part of it, like very early on, I was totally drawn in. I think it was episode two, maybe where Cyril has kind of said, Oh, I want to investigate this murder further. We need to do something more about this. And his supervisor basically like chews him out and mm. basically kind of, and the dialogue in that is like instantly, I was just reminded of the wire and it yeah. just reminded me of, uh, you know, a scene where like someone would go into Rawls's office or like Burrell's office and get chewed out and say, sweep this under the carpet. We don't want City Hall getting angry. Let's just keep the stats, uh, you know, kind of sweet and everything. But it was done in, in, in such a really interesting and engaging way that it, it really kind of took me by surprise. And then you feed from that. You're like, I think the, the wire is an interesting kind of, uh, touchstone for for I mean obviously we talk about it a lot because you know we're two white guys with a podcast <laughs> um, but um, like there are a lot of parallels between this show and and that show like you know that show is about how people become trapped in institutions or organizations and and how they're all kind of flawed and and and, and or definitely has a lot of that and treats all of those, you know, whether it's like a fledgling rebellion or the, uh, you know, the basically the space Gestapo or the Senate and how people get essentially stuck in these systems and, and, or even like the prison system, for example, very, very kind of similar and how they try and get themselves out, out of it um, was something that like, I didn't see coming from a, from a Disney show. Mm. And I think as well, um, the the writing for me was what drew me in as well because like yeah we said at the start i was very skeptical about the the concept of andor and even when people started talking about how good it was i was kind of like i've heard that before like Mm -hmm. you know like yeah i'll I'll wait and see how like things shake out and then um austin walker who um used to uh, write for waypoint the vice gaming vertical giant bomb and things like that and who has a very very good star wars podcast called a more civilized age he shared a clip from one of the first couple of episodes which is the one where the character of sergeant mosk played by uh, trevor from eastenders um <laughs> meets cyril and like they're having this conversation and i was just so taken with the flow of the dialogue and the way in which it was this real kind of like 
obtuse bureaucratic dialogue and they were playing off of each other and it, you really got such a huge sense of the two characters just from that that you know and that is also the first conversation those two characters have and immediately you're like okay this is a guy who's like a real in the case of cyril you know a guy who's like really interested in pursuing this thing and you've got this one guy who is clearly very captivated by him maybe sees him as a um conduit for him to commit violence against people and there's like a real interesting interplay between the two of them where cyril is is kind of like talking about what he wants to do and trevor from eastenders um is really trying to like gas him up and talking about it like you know talking about you know um efficiency in the pursuit of uh inspirational leadership or whatever he says you know like he has these 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 wonderful turns of phrases <laughs> and it really as it then it, it had that thing where it's, oh right this is being written by tony gilroy <laughs> this is being mm-hmm. written by the guy who wrote uh, michael clayton like one of the best written mo- american movies i think of the last like 15 years or something you know like well, that movie came out in 2007 i think and he is someone who has always had that interest in people who work within institutions in the case of michael clayton obviously it's you know a, a guy working for a law firm and being a fixer for them or even like you know he wrote the the, the born movies the first three and directed the 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 born legacy um the spin-off and those are all about you know that those are movies are very interested in them the um institutional machinations of the cia and the ways in which these introduced these institutions work and protect themselves and you really see that being explored in andor as well and i think that probably says a lot about the quality of the show and its writing was that was the thing that drew me in it wasn't like people talking about oh you know there's this great battle or you know there's Mm -hmm. this great lightsaber sequence or something it was literally like i saw this one two minute clip of these two guys having a conversation in you know a shady uh, you know what essentially looks like an it department you know Mm -hmm. late at night and i was instantly just kind of like i need to see what this show is this seems really fascinating um Mm -hmm. and it's also probably telling that like one of the first things that really drew my attention to it was someone described it as a show that is at least in part about how shitty mom muffman's marriage is and i just kind of think all right that's that's not what i was expecting from the show let's let's see what it's about is uh, like her husband like is like just one of the like just best all-time dirtbags even though he doesn't (laughs) actually do anything other than just kind of be passive aggressive and just like just a bit of a knob um Mm -hmm. but like the the actor who plays him really um i think uh i think someone said the other day he was in like he was one of the leads in monarch of the Glen. oh Um, yes yes he was yeah. yeah Yeah, and now now look at him go. Um, I think it's really interesting that like um, the there was like some really good kind of like monologuey type bits yeah. in oh, yeah. Star Wars that the actors clearly enjoyed doing, and I didn't really think about it too much until I kind of saw something on on Twitter kind of being a, a wag about it as they are want to do on Twitter. It was like, hey, the four best speeches in all of Star Wars are all in the last three episodes of of Andor because mm-hmm. it, it's not really something. It's it's not really if you look how frustrated uh, Ewan McGregor was during the uh, the prequels, like it's not really an actor's um, showcase, is it? Uh, uh, the Star Wars movies, but in this, the actors get some really good stuff to do. The the you know the scene between uh, the the kind of the man on the inside and Stellan Skarsgård. Oh yeah, was just 
remarkable it just felt like and uh, when i saw that was the bit where i was like I don't, i'd enjoyed andor very much and i thought it was a cut above all the other shows and kind of was kind of embarrassed the other shows in in much of a way but that was the point at which i started to consider this is actually like genuinely excellent because it felt mm-hmm. like like it felt like the answer to the question what if hbo made a prestige tv drama set in the star wars universe and I felt like that was finally like that's that's what we'd come to, and that's what we got. And that scene I thought was was incredible. Yeah, I, I particularly yeah, the the line that really stuck in my head was you know he says you know I burn my life for a sunset I'll never see. Mm-hmm. Just kind of like what is the, like who <laughs> thinks of a line like that and thinks yes it needs to be said by Dylan Skarsgård in a Star Wars show like it's such a great summation of the idea of of what it means to to fight a rebellion to fight a revolution like the idea is like yeah you're fighting for a better world you probably are gonna die doing it but mm-hmm. you have to be driven by that desire it's like yes but uh, you know a better world is possible you know then that is um that speech just like really beautifully explores that whilst also then exploring the the notion of yeah but you also have to do some fucking horrible things to do it you have to be a real bastard who you know commits to as he you know plans to do to killing you know cassian andor who is you know nice guy all around and 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 as is proven by the end of the show where he essentially says um that he wants to join up he essentially does the 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 scene from the end of michael clayton where he says you know i'm not the guy you kill i'm the guy you buy um -hmm. but he's like i'm not the guy you kill i'm the guy you invite to be a rebel um you know like it, it, it but in his mind it's obviously justified because he can't have any loose ends and and andor is a loose end even if he is someone who did a great service for the rebellion by helping carry off this great heist which even if it you know monetarily is probably not the thing that's going to fund the rebellion but it's a great calling card to essentially say we're not gonna take it anymore and we're gonna mm. fight back against you and, and kind of give you a bloody nose yeah one thing I found really interesting about this uh, show is kind of the approach that Tony Gilroy took to it from the beginning. And I've been kind of like looking back through kind of older articles and stuff to mm-hmm. see kind of if there were clues that this show could have been good from the off. And I think they were there, but we just chose to ignore them mainly because there was just too much content. There was too much things happening. Yeah. Um, and I found it interesting thinking about this show in comparison to when they announced uh, Solo the movie Mm. about Han Solo because like these two are like both origin stories essentially right um but the difference is is that like uh Andor is is actually a story and Solo is just about kind of showing you things like before we they even made the film they were like we're going to show you how Solo got his name. We're going to show you how he meets Chewie, how he gets his gun, how he meets Lando, how he does the castle run. And What's the deal with these dice? Yeah, it's all just so, like, perfunctory. And I was looking back and, like, when Andor was announced, like, everyone was like, hey, we're going to get to see how he meets, like, K2SO and uh that character who's like his handler in rogue one general draven mm. we'll see him like do some missions and then there was an interview with alan tudyk who voices k2so and he's like yeah i'm not in this <laughs> <laughs> and it was like okay from the off like because because the thing is what would what would that have added that would just be showing us something mm. we know has happened yeah. and the the good thing is is that like we see those imperial security droids in the space miami episode 
Mm-hmm. And instantly we see it and we're like, oh, that's K2SO. <laughs> it's, it like nearly chokes him to death. It's yeah. really terrifying. We're seeing like what is in Rogue One a, uh, you know, a kind of a, a funny, he does the quips. Like mm-hmm. I said, he's got, he's got the quips. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this, it's an instrument of, of oppression. And like, I thought that was really smartly done and really cleverly done. And we, sh- we should have known from the beginning that like Tony Gilroy wasn't interested in uh, padding out wikipedia articles uh, <laughs> he was more interested in telling a story that he thought is interesting and that and that is exactly what we've got yeah i think that's a great comparison with solo as well because if you think of solo he starts off it's kind of a rogue he ends it it's a rogue with a different ship <laughs> you know yep. like that's that's the arc of that story Whereas this one he starts off he's a guy who is you know, he's a low-level criminal. He only really cares about the people in his life, about his mother. He's trying to find his sister, but you know, he's he's otherwise not concerned with the the broader questions of the, the galaxy. And then by the end of it, he's a guy who's willing to give up his life in order to help the rebellion. He's a man who's been taught how to believe in something bigger than himself, and mm-hmm. that is that's like a very powerful and very wonderfully realized arc. When in, and that is obviously something that Solo being very much a box ticking exercise uh, about a famous character um could not have been at least not you know once you pick out the two guys who had an interesting take on it um, mm-hmm. i mean maybe the lord and mill version wouldn't have been that different in that regard but you know um i i, I think that that is the key to what like really makes and also goes it takes a character that you maybe didn't have that much interest in beforehand because he's just one of many people in a big ensemble in Rogue One and also probably not even the one you would most pick out saying, oh, this guy needs a spin-off. Like, you would more likely go for the, the Donnie Yen character or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. You'd probably look at him and say, oh, yeah, like, seems like that guy's got a lot going on. Be interesting to see what his story is. Um, and makes you uh, interested in his story, in his journey, um, but also the show, despite being called Andor, it also doesn't feel like it rests solely on his shoulders he feels very much like the point of view character that you are following along as he encounters like all the excesses of the empire and becomes radicalized and as he meets all these other people who are just trying to you know stay alive in some regard like you know like andy circus's character um mm-hmm. in the, the the prison arc where you are being introduced to all these fascinating characters through him and i think that also is that takes a lot of guts i think from a writing perspective to basically tell this guy and say we're not necessarily going to make him the most kind of like fascinating character he's not going to get all the big the, the great lines we're going to give that to you know Stellan Skarsgård and, and Fiona Shaw and things like that mm-hmm. um, but he's still but, but you know using him as an anchor to explore the the themes that uh, the show is otherwise interested in and I think in terms of like performances, obviously it's across the board pretty pretty goddamn solid. Um, mm-hmm. But special shout out to Genevieve O'Reilly for Mon Mothma yes. because if if we think about like I don't mean some people listening to this might not know, but like she she's playing Mon Mothma because she was cast in Revenge of the Sith, and mm. as Mon Mothma, who is a character we see in she's in Return of the Jedi, isn't it? So I think that's her first her appearance in. Yeah, many Bothans died to it, get this information exactly. Um, and she was cast in the Revenge of the Sith, and that was very much a kind of like, "Hey, look who it is, everybody!" 
cameo. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. from there, she has gone on to play Mon Mothma in Rebels. She voices uh, Mon Mothma in Rebels. Um, and we see a bit more of her in that. And then she turns up in Rogue One. And then I thought that her character's arc and Genevieve O'Reilly's performance was incredibly good in Andor. Mm. I really thought it was fascinating to watch this incredibly powerful woman trapped in a very precarious situation (laughs) um, and trying to watch her subtly untangle herself from it every week has just been like a joy. Mm. And I really loved the way in which it shows her clearly manoeuvring the social and political world of Coruscant, where she is putting up this front of she's this ineffective senator who is like a do-gooder who's always starting up committees and things like that. Mm -hmm. But then unfurling that to realise, oh, like, actually she is very radical. Like, she's having a conversation at one point um, with the character, and that character says to her, you know, like, oh, I think you'll find my politics too strong for your taste or something. Where he's trying to be like, you know, I've become radicalised. I've become someone who believes in, you know, kind of like tearing down the system. And then she goes on to have this conversation in which she's just like, like yeah, I'm going to put you on a committee. But what this is actually doing is funder, <laughs> funneling funds to a terrorist organisation. <laughs> um, and I thought that um, scenes like that for her in particular, I thought were, um, she just like did a really incredible job. Because she is also like maintaining because she's in a you know she's at a party she's at like a dinner party with all these luminaires around she's maintaining this like very calm demeanor whilst talking about it and yeah i think that is such a a great um trick to pull off as an actor to to be able to convey all of that meaning whilst outwardly you know doing this kind of performance like a literal performance for the other people in the room mm. uh, and then also the show does like a really good job of getting you invested in what's going on in her personal life with her shitty husband and her awful child. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I, th- I, I thought like that element of it was really good, really well handled as well. Cause it would be all too easy for that half of the show to feel like perfunctory because it's obviously not as dynamic as, you know, what Andor's go doing, getting, you know, into scrapes mm-hmm. or as, um, darkly alluring as all of the stuff with the the ISB. Yeah, it's it's like interesting talking about a lot of those scenes where she's kind of putting on a performance and uh, a performance within a performance at those parties and stuff. It just kind of reminds me of something that I've found quite funny about this whole uh, Andor um, discourse. And like I mentioned before, that there is an entire kind of cottage industry of like YouTube content creators who make Star Wars content of watching them crying when Luke Skywalker turns up and and like you know mm-hmm. does does a flip and a spin or whatever. But there's also a a whole kind of raft of channels who you know do detailed breakdowns and Easter egg reveals and references and everything after shows drop and uh, they you know they focus on the Star Wars Game of Thrones you know the, the, the kind of nerd stuff and like. I watch some of them because like some of them are kind of fun and like especially when it comes to stuff that I don't really know a lot about like the Marvel comics like sometimes Mm. they're like illuminating that like hey this is from a comic or whatever but mostly it's very shallow kind of entertaining and it's fine or whatever um but like I think the best one out of all of them is a guy called Ryan Airy has a, a, a show called Screen Crush and um he's probably the best out of all of those and like because he, he clearly knows like films and you know stuff and he's a lot of the times he's doing these kind of shallow videos about easter eggs and references but he 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 knows what he's talking about right and it's really funny because like when andor's out like there isn't any <laughs> there's no easter eggs at all <laughs> and every week like 
uh, there's no theories of like who is this because obviously so much of modern um, contiguous storytelling is based around the mystery box. Like who is this? Yeah. Who is the, what's this theory? Who's this? Are we going to see this character? Are we going to have this or whatever? And like they were just like, oh, I got nothing. Like each, like each week there was there was some stuff, and like I think it's actually quite telling that I think um, uh, Tony Gilroy said that he put all the Easter eggs in Luthen's shop. Like in Luthen shop, all of those things are, are stuff from other things. And like, it's fun to kind of see what they are. But there was a bit in like about like eight episodes in or something where the Screen Crush episode that week was like talking about film grammar and set mm -hmm. design and costume design. And there was a bit where like he broke down the scene where Mon Mothma was um you know saying one thing to someone it was the scene where she meets the gangster for the first time and he's yeah. like he she he she's saying this but he means this and she and i'm like hey this is incredibly funny because <laughs> like like media literacy has, has, has fallen to such a level that you know people are used to engaging in it on a hey what's this from and what's mm -hmm. that an easter egg from but then also like it was nice to see someone who knows what they're talking about break something down in a way that was interesting uh, from like a film perspective rather than just a hey you see that necklace in the background uh, Jar Jar Binks actually wore that in like you know <laughs> Phantom Menace um, that, I just found that really funny that like it forced those kind of <laughs> the YouTubers who do things about references to actually talk about a show and engage with it on like some kind of level yeah there was I think I think her name's Grace Randolph who is like a, supposedly like an entertainment writer she's is, fucking awful <laughs> let's she, just say it right now yeah she is she's dreadful but um one of the first things i remember seeing about andor was like she did a video which someone posted like a clip of on on twitter where they were essentially say where, where she was essentially saying like you know what are they doing there's no like easter eggs there's no references and things like that and be, the first thing i saw was someone quote tweeting it and saying like yeah that's why it's good <laughs> and yeah. just like nothing so thoroughly kind of like cut to the quick of what was going on with Andor and the appeal of it certainly to me mm -hmm. um than than that one little thing like oh right yeah they're not they're not interested in like totally extraneous bullshit mm -hmm. they're interested in like telling a story with characters in a world that people are are familiar with mm -hmm. um which is nice to see yeah um, and just circling back to performances really enjoyed Catherine Hunter as um Cyril's mum uh, yeah, Catherine Hunter is a is a, a great Shakespearean actress, and I actually saw her on a name drop. I actually saw her do it. She was um, King Lear. I saw her at the Globe uh, in the summer, uh, just gone um, on one of the hottest days of the year, and I almost died. It was horrible, but she was amazing. <laughs> and like when she turned up in it, I was like, oh my god! And then you know the way that she um, kind of demeans him in in such a callous and cruel and precise way and also mm. there's he mentions like you know you've been in my private box mother <laughs> i'm like what's in <laughs> what's in cyril's private box i want to know what's in cyril's private box but i i i actually was i found that a joy to watch that's a relationship i've not seen in uh in a star wars thing and it's like there's some real nuance in in you know the way they kind of interplay with each other like i don't know if you notice but every time she talks to him he starts eating something so he doesn't have to listen to her like and crunching things really loud <laughs> trying to kind of drown her out and yeah it, that's a really interesting kind of and that could have been a very kind of one-dimensional hen-pecking mother kind of disappointed with her son but it actually feeds an awful lot into to Cyril's arc. And I'm really interested to see where 
Cyril will go in season two because at first when I saw the finale, I felt like he was he'd been a bit of a passenger towards the back end of the season. I felt like his his story was kind of done. But mm. the more I think about it, and the more I've kind of like seen other people kind of talking about, you know, why did he go to Ferrix is really interesting. Um, and I mean, you know, a guy will go a long way to get a date if he's an incel. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And you know, he did drag her off into a room with a gun in her back. Which, yeah. you know, is probably how he'd go about business. But yeah, I, I find him as a character very compelling. And, and I think that Catherine Hunter's uh, added an awful lot to that. Yeah, I thought that that scene of, of him taking her off in the uh, and then ending up in the like supply closet or whatever together, um, where she says, I should say thank you. And he says, uh, you don't have to, whatever. I thought that was funny as like, it, it kind of felt like a, a weird, twisted... Um, version of you know uh i love you i know <laughs> yeah i thought that was i thought that scene was very good and an interesting way to kind of like end that um not end because obviously the you know the second season will presumably explore their relationship in whatever form it takes uh more but yeah i thought that was quite interesting and, and like there was like genuine palpable tension in that sequence and again we get to the idea of like where you kind of find yourself weirdly rooting for horrible characters i was thinking like oh just kiss her no, wait, no. That's, that's, no, that shouldn't be what happens on any for no, any reason. No one deserves this. Um, <laughs> yeah, no one wants this. That would I think if it happened, everyone there would have been instant recoil, and we probably wouldn't yeah. have recorded this episode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, speaking of like the the second season, I think it's kind of good that they probably that they've already started filming it because obviously the this past weekend Bob Chapik was fired from. Disney, he was the, the you know, he was CEO, took over from Bob Iger, and um it seems like Disney are probably gonna be doing some belt tightening mm-hmm. because uh, it's been reported that their streaming uh section is losing about four billion dollars a year. That's um it's a lot, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, and like they have other problems, like I think the parks for, for obvious reasons, you know, the you know, COVID over the last couple of years are really down in terms of revenue and that's always been like if you read any history of disney like if you read um disney awards and things like that the parks have always been like the the the, the spine of disney like the reason disney exists now and wasn't like stripped for parts in the 70s was because the parks were still like successful enough when um their movies were making no money whatsoever mm-hmm. um and they're now they've they've committed to this idea of like oh yeah we're gonna put all of our stuff on streaming and it it looks like it has been like devastating to their finances because they put so much money into it and they have and all this stuff is so um expensive um do you think oh and you know that stuff is probably not going to affect season two of andor because they're already starting on it mm-hmm. do you do you think uh this is likely to curb future ambitions for star wars on the like television slash streaming front i I think possibly in terms of how they approach things because you know they built the ricks road with the bell tower with the anvil at the top and Mm -hmm. you know which incidentally that was my favorite thing every time they had that guy hammering away was just one of my favorite i found out as well that that guy's name was like alan bell or something like that's just genuinely his (laughs) name um but yeah i you know given that i mean there must be demands upon the volume um yeah. but given that there's kind of three or four of them around the world now 
and they're Disney, um, they probably would look at that and say, well, if you're looking for an obvious way to, to cut costs, then you can just say no to some of the, hey, can we, can we, they move the entire production to Cleveley's on the north on the uh, the <laughs> northwest coast of England, um, and spend a weekend at Blackpool. the The idea that that Diego Luna, star of Dirty Dancing Two, Havana Nights, has been to Blackpool <laughs> is 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 quite something. But um, I I think that if you're talking about a, a kind of an impact that they might make, then that would probably be what I'd suggest. There was a lot of extras and a lot of it was a big mm. cast and. Yeah. You know, we haven't, with with the exception of like Fiona Shaw, she's the only trim to season two, I guess. And mm-hmm. I, I think they said they were only going to do two seasons. Yeah. So yeah. whether or not they've been given, you know, carte blanche to go out however they want. Uh, I saw someone on the internet today saying they should do three seasons, but, but series three should be um, Tony Gilroy's version of Rogue One. <laughs> <laughs> just, just remake it just like blow straight through um and you know do what he would have done from the office if he'd have been in the, the director's seat from the beginning um mm. but i i think that 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 could be a because apparently there are a couple of scenes in andor that are on the volume and right. you know we could see more of that happening but I, I think it started filming this week i think yeah um yeah. so um yeah uh i i guess i guess I don't know how much money it saves because I don't know how much um, the volume costs on the like the back end. Because clearly someone's got to do all those backgrounds and and kind of composite it all in or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I imagine it's a desk, you know, a damn sight cheaper than you know moving fifty people and putting them up in a you know six or seven locations. And and the thing is, I think Andor was a long shoot because it it shot mm. for season one a long time ago. Yeah. And I don't think it was delayed for COVID. I just think they went to a lot of different places. Mm. Um, so, yeah, maybe they might lose an episode. I don't know. I, I think that um, there's probably ramifications for like, actors' contracts and and uh, you know, union implications if they suddenly go from a 10-part ten, ten order to an 8-part order or whatever. But, you know, it's Disney. They can, they can kind of do what they want. Um, mm. And if they're looking at a show that is not doing perhaps the numbers that the Mandalorian does, maybe they might. I was I was thinking more in terms of like going beyond Andor, I mean like lo- looking at what they could do with Star Wars more generally, because these shows in general are very, very expensive, even utilizing the, 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 the volume. Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't know, because the the thing is what we've got coming up is uh, there's a lot of animation coming. We've got mm-hmm. um and the next the next cab off the rank that's live action, we've got Mandalorian three, which is in the bag, and Babu Frick is in it. <laughs> um, uh, then we've got a Bar- so- barring prison time. Yep. Yeah. Uh, then we've got Ahsoka, which is in the in the can, I believe. And then we've got the very curious proposition of the acolyte, mm. which is which I which is odd because it's obviously an unknown quantity. In the sense that it's based in the High Republic era, which I don't know if you know too much about that, but they they Lucasfilm launched an entirely new setting for Star Wars, uh, yeah. a time period called the High Republic, which is before the Old Republic. You'd think it'd be the other way around. Oh wow! Um, so yeah. no one is alive uh, from, <laughs> and it basically it's kind of like the heyday 
the the absolute high point of the Jedi, but it's mm. kind of Arthurian, kind of like it's kind of interesting the setting, kind of, and the Acolyte, which is the Leslie Headland show, is set then, ah, and that's been that's been made, and I imagine if any of those shows would be expensive, it would kind of be that one if they've got to, yeah. they've got to go all out on an entirely new setting and everything, um, but yeah, I mean, they they might try and i i would love this to happen they they might try and maybe do star wars things with a slightly narrower focus or a smaller focus they've had they've had a lot of critical success for things like in the marvel stuff uh werewolf by night which is kind mm. of like an hour long kind of two locations type thing small cast whether or not they see any value in doing things like that um yeah. little kind of like bits of storytelling that that can go around and be done with smaller budgets or and and can maybe take a few more risks which is quite appealing um mm-hmm. but yeah i don't know it's hard to it's hard to tell i don't it's with streaming it's so difficult to know like how successful something is yeah that's been, I think, the problem with Andor in general is like early on there was, I think there was like a, a Twitter thread or an article where someone was saying, oh, you know, the, the, the ratings aren't that good. And then the person who posted that like deleted it. So like no one knows. Mm-hmm. I, I, look, I looked at Google Trends like because that's at least something to gauge interest. And Andor was about as high a level as like the Mandalorian mm-hmm. for Google searches. So I like it's hard to tell. It seems like, uh, you know, people like it more than those other shows, but also... It's like the people I follow on Twitter who didn't like those other shows like this show. So it's it's kind of a skewed um, skewed sample, I guess. I think um, you mentioning Wealth by Night was also funny because I was just thinking like, ah, oh, remember when we watched those two guys wanking into a pool in Itamambatambian and then <laughs> they're both in like major Disney properties airing at the same time. Yeah. Um, what, a, what a weird journey we've all been on. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I wonder if... The streaming thing is is proving to be something of a disaster financially for Disney. As big a company as they are, like can't really shed four billion dollars a year mm. um, ad, ad 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 infinitum. I wonder if that maybe makes them scale back on their streaming ambitions for Star Wars, and they make another movie because there has been talk about them like planning to do another movie. And like the nice thing about putting out a Star Wars movie into theaters is it will actually make money. <laughs> Yeah. Whereas um, it doesn't seem to be a guarantee that that's actually happening with any of the streaming shows. They're just like throwing money into the void and then apparently just being eaten by by a Sarlacc or something. Mm. But I'm, I mean, the thing is, though, is that I'm still not 100% sure like how that works. Because, for instance, for me, right, if a Disney movie comes out of the cinema, it's really 50-50 as to whether I'm going to see it or just hang on. Because mm. the the window is so short now for yeah. uh, for Disney stuff, is it like twelve weeks or something, or yeah. maybe even ten? I think Buzz uh, Buzz Lightyear, the that Buzz Lightyear movie that no one liked or cared about, that was just weird. That was like a bit shorter even than that, I think. And you know, there was no way I was going to pay to see that in the cinema, but like mm. I would probably watch it if it was on streaming. And I wonder whether like they if they say right, we're going to put this movie out, but it's gonna go on Disney Plus very shortly. There will be a proportion of people who just might not do it because they're already paying for Disney Plus, which has gone up in price and is having adverts put in it. And yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Like I, 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 
I don't really know what effect the the that that window shortening has had on Disney's fortunes. Um, mm. I'd be interested to know what the numbers would have been on something like Encanto, for example, had it not arrived on Disney Plus for another three months. Yeah, because that that still managed to like a hundred million in theaters, mm-hmm. but it probably would have yeah, it probably would have done more if they had delayed that um, window by quite a, by by more. Because like if you look at the the obvious example of like, hey, people do actually still want to go and see moving theaters from this past year was Top Gun Maverick, mm-hmm. which played like gangbusters and it still isn't on streaming. It goes on streaming in like three weeks or something, like seven months after it came out. Onto Paramount um, Plus. Yes, the king of streaming <laughs> services. And I think uh, that is kind of like an abject lesson. Like, uh, it, there has been something of a Pandora's box effect. Like, because the, the companies that committed to um, putting their movies on streaming services during the pandemic and who haven't walked that back um, have been the ones who have been hardest hit by, you know, people returning to go and watch things in movies because like we've got um strange world is the new disney movie that's absolutely flopped mm-hmm. um this coming i mean it's only been out for like a day but it's it's, it's already looking pretty brutal yeah. for it and i think a large part of that is that disney have conditioned people to think oh you know this movie's coming to streaming in like like say three months or something or maybe no not even that um why why would i go and pay to see it um whereas you know paramount didn't do any of that maybe they maybe put like two or three movies on streaming that no one cared about mm-hmm. um but like the big marquee stuff they kept back and they they've reaped the benefits for it and then you know warner brothers did their day and date thing during the pandemic and they've now switched back to movies are going to play in theaters and then if you have hbo max you know they'll show up for a bit yeah um, I, th- I think the one thing that i would say that against them making a star wars movie rather than than chucking good money after bad onto streaming is that like who's gonna make it like they've Mm. they've announced the curse of the star wars movie that's been announced is you know is i think the thing that i saw someone put out like if you if you were announced attached to a star wars project this is after um the guy who was doing oh man what was he doing um, I might have to look this up, but like uh, there was a Star Wars project announced with someone attached to it, and they said it wasn't happening a couple of weeks ago. And someone crunched the numbers and said, if you're announced attached to a Star Wars project, you have a 14% chance <laughs> of ending the project because the only people who have are J.J. Abrams for episode seven and Ryan Johnson for episode eight. Mm. And like currently, yeah. we've got Taika Waititi, who is like uh, unknown status on his Star Wars movie. And the thing that makes me think that's not going to happen is a, it's been announced, and b, <laughs> he is attached to so many things. He yeah, is he's doing... the new Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, he is. He is doing so much stuff. And the last official update was that he was still writing it. And, like, that doesn't fill me with confidence there'll be a Star Wars movie next year or a year after. Um, yeah. We had... Um, the uh, Rogue Squadron Rogue movie wasn't there? got cancelled, uh, quietly cancelled. There was There's a lot of things that have been announced that never mentioned. There's the Kevin Feige movie that got announced that never mentioned. There's obviously the, oh, yeah. the Ryan Johnson trilogy that's been announced that never mentioned and not officially cancelled. Mm. And, you know, everyone involved still says that's happening, but then you don't go and sign a multi-picture deal with Netflix 
um yeah. uh, you know if you're waiting for a, a star wars movie uh, trilogy to to kind of open up on your schedule and then um there's also like there was a lando tv series that was announced with the guy who yeah. did uh, dear white people that's just never been mentioned again yeah. um donald glover doesn't really seem to have much interest in returning to <laughs> no. to why, star wars why would he um yeah. because and the, but the thing is he would be someone who would be amazing in that role if they did something interesting with it but mm. the time they got him in they were just like oh just say the thing and do the mm-hmm. do the thing and point at the man and then say the line and we'll Fuck all, a robot we'll, we'll all clap um yeah uh it's it's i don't really know what's going on with it it like it was obviously a a keen pastime of bad people on the internet to bash Lucasfilm in the mm. early days and particularly like Kathleen Kennedy. Um, but I think after now, you know, what is it? 2013, I think, or 2014, they bought, they bought Lucasfilm. Um, yeah. Right about then. I don't think they know what they're doing. <laughs> um, yeah. Like it doesn't seem like they've got a particularly good plan. And I find it really hard to believe and I'm not one of those people who's like, they should have planned out the entire trilogy because that's not how they did the first trilogy. Have you yeah. seen the first trilogy? Um, and the one trilogy. <laughs> have you seen the third the third movie in the first trilogy? <laughs> yeah. Where it doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah. Um, you know, in the opening five minutes of the second film, the best one that everyone says, Luke kisses his sister on the mouth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's not planned out. Um, you know, so I, I didn't really subscribe to that, but like to, to essentially just just lose all backbone and kind of commitment to it and just bail at the first sign of trouble with anything mm. was, it's just really disheartening and dispiriting. Um, and it ends up pleasing nobody at all. Yeah. I think an interesting parallel could be drawn um, with how in recent years they've handled, they've handled the video game side of things with star Wars mm-hmm. because for a long time, um, it was all handled in house by LucasArts, and then obviously you know they got bought out by Disney, and then Disney didn't really do anything with the Star Wars stuff for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now, what they've kind of done is they've essentially because um, yeah, full transparency, I work for EA, um, Electronic Arts, and EA had the uh, license on Star Wars for a while, and then now it kind of gets parceled out to like anyone. They they kind of are giving out the EA the the the, the Star Wars license to lots of different companies and they're all kind of like working on their own thing ea's working on like a sequel to jedi fallen order which i i I think was a fantastic game i didn't work on it so i can say that you Mm -hmm. know i'm not gassing myself up for anyone i work with it was just a really good game and they're doing a sequel to that um and then like there's all these other companies are all working on different versions of, of star wars and that to me feels like the way to do it would be to you know go to people and say what would be your take on star wars and then just give them the resources the problem is the resources to make a movie are like considerably more than what it takes to make a game. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the strictures of hitting a release date and things like that are a lot harsher on movies than, than for games. But, but like, if they could do some version of that where they're not all um, these gargantuan pop culture releases where you release a movie every couple of years, but they could just basically say, hey, everyone gets a chance to kind of play in the sandbox, you'd probably get more interesting stuff and stuff would actually get made whereas i think now for reasons that are to do with you know the toxicity of people discussing star wars online and things like that Mm -hmm. um 
and partly just the fact that they've made a lot of mistakes over the years that have kind of bit them in the arse. Um, we have, have there's a point where every single time Star a new Star Wars movie would come out, it would be so like freighted and so fraught mm. um, that it, you kind of find it hard to imagine them being able to put anything out that would please like a decent number of people. And then the, then the problem is then how do you make money? It's become this like real albatross around their neck, the Star Wars license, because like this is the most valuable IP in the world, but um, they don't seem to be able to make any money out of it. Yeah, and it doesn't help that The Force Awakens was a bonkers runaway success. Yes. And, you know, there was suddenly that expectation that there'd be a Star Wars movie every Christmas and it would do the same mm. numbers. And then yeah. I think there was a really interesting thing that happened. And, you know, to go back to Solo again, when Solo was going through all its production nightmares, they, you know, replaced the creative team and reshot practically the entire film. It was like 85% the film. When they were making the, the decision to do that, Lucasfilm asked Disney for more time. They said, mm-hmm. we're going to have to reshoot the entire movie. Can we bump it from a May release to a Christmas release? Uh, or it was a May release or the following May release, I think. Mm. And they were like, no. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. Like they are, they are so beholden to that kind of uh, release date and kind of like forward planning to, they will release something they know is going to be substandard. um, And they know that like, if they gave it more time, it might be a bit better, but it might cost a bit more and therefore make a bit more money that they were just like, yeah, sorry. No, we've, we've got, we've got, you know, shareholders dependent on their dividend for this. So yeah, mm. sorry. Sucks to be you. Um but could you put a character called Therm Scissor Punch in it? <laughs> Which, you know, is a thing that happened. Mm, yeah. And then and you look at that as well. Like that movie, if the exact that exact same movie had been released at Christmas, it probably would have made like twice as much as it did. Mm-hmm. Just because everyone would be like, yeah, it's just oh, it's, it's time to watch a movie. It's Christmas time, and you know, what else are you gonna do? Yeah, um, really felt like they shot themselves in the foot there. Yeah, um, I just realized like of of all the things we've talked about about this, uh, it's funny that we talked about how like um, Andor, you know, it doesn't really reference any of the other stuff. We did mention the fact that Saw Gerrera is in this, who is obviously yeah. a character who is in Rogue One, but has also been in lots of other ancillary stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I remember when you and I watched Rogue One and then talked about it on the show. Like we had a lot of fun talking about the sheer amount of scenery that um, that that he ate up. Um, couldn't have worked on the volume, really. No, just no work, nothing to feed him. Eating them pixels. Um, <laughs> the, it, it helps continue the the eternal debate that I have is: is Forrest Whitaker good or is he rubbish? Because, mm-hmm. you know, you see a film like Bird and you think that's an extraordinary performance. And then you see a film like Rogue One and you're like, what is he doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, he is really making some choices and they dial it back a bit in, in Andor. And yeah, I think that it sells the character a lot better. Of the Because the thing is about Saw Gerrera is when you meet that character, you clearly haven't done your homework, Ed. Um, when mm-hmm. you meet that character in The Clone Wars... He's like an idealistic kind of uh, yeah. kind of um, soldier who I think his sister, his, his sister and him, his sister gets killed, and then he he basically goes kind of off the rails and becomes a kind of 
uh, a guerrilla fighter who is useful to the rebellion's cause, but is also a hindrance because of his kind of tactics uh, uh, don't kind of align with with kind of what they want to do, and he's a bit of a wild card. Mm. And he's a space Arafat, exactly. And um, yeah, in Rogue One, he just comes across as someone who is reading the script off someone who is who strapped it to a pig that is running around in the background <laughs> and he doesn't know what film he's in or what tone to strike so he's just going for yes that's that's what I'm going for all of it mm-hmm. um and his line delivery of of the word boar gullet <laughs> yeah um is quite something um in in terms of other people who are in this um I really did not expect Andy Circus to turn up, or I, I probably should uh, stress this uh, for people who don't know. It's actually Andy Circus doing a motion capture of Andy Circus <laughs> playing the Kino Loy character, um, but I did not expect this at all. No, I didn't either, and I thought I did find it weird that you know some people I saw online saying like they found it distracting that he was in it and he also played Snoke, <laughs> mainly ma- mainly because. I had forgotten that he played Stark. <laughs> like, like I've completely erased that character from my memory. It's like, oh yeah, I guess he was also in Star Wars, playing a different role. Give him his but full, like... give him his full title, Ed. It's Supreme Leader Snoke. <laughs> Supreme Leader Snoke. <laughs> it's a very silly um, name. Yeah, um, but I, like it, it didn't distract me at all because Andy Circus, you know, obviously he is renowned for his motion capture work, rightly so. He's mm-hmm. like a pioneer in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I, I rewatched um, all the Lord of the Rings movies earlier this year, and like you know, Gollum. It looks amazing. Still yep. a great performance. Yeah. Um, but he is like he's underrated. I think at this point, as like what a good like actual actor he is when they that they don't put the dots on him mm-hmm. when they just like hey you know here's a here's a part for you to dig into. And I thought his performance throughout that entire arc was really great. I thought I read an interview of him today where he was talking about um how he constructed the character. You know when they talked about you know what he's going to be doing in this arc and how he was like really interested in exploring the idea of this guy who is, you know, kind of a, a hard ass who's like driving his men to to perform well, but he's doing it to protect them. He's mm-hmm. like, okay, we need you to work hard so that you don't get punished. And like I really liked how he explored that and you know his re- his reluctance to entertain the idea of escape because in his mind he's like, you know, I'm just going to keep my head down, I'm going to do my time and then I'm going to get out of here. And then I thought the way the show depicted the moment when he breaks when he realizes none of us are getting out of here our sentences are never going to end we are going to die in this place mm-hmm. um and then him like helping lead them uh lead the escape shouting you know uh, one way out and all that sort of stuff um i thought that was just fantastic just mm-hmm. like great great short problems and that is, as well i think it's like a nice benefit of the um structure they performed they pursued in this is that you know it is a big cast but also some of those actors are only around for like three episodes at a time yeah like his whole his whole crew that he has the the heist Mm. with like um you know the guy who was in girls uh and who uh is now on the bear uh and um the the guy who i kept thinking of like marxist frankie nunez um uh like those guys they're not in it after marxist in the middle is that what we're calling it (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, yeah, Marxist in the middle. Like they're not around for outside of those three episodes. So I think like obviously it was a big show and it was expensive and all this sort of stuff. But I thought that if you think about it in time to like a a a, a film making sense, like that I think is that's some smart choices where essentially you don't need all these people around all the time. And also they do a very clever job of being like, oh, like 
a lot of the movie a lot of the show kind of like takes place in actually only a handful of locations because like all the imperial stuff's in kind of a handful of boardrooms mm-hmm. and they're like Andor will be in like one location for like a huge part of the story so it, it has this i think this real smart balance between feeling expansive because it's you know literally a story that's spanning a universe and all these different planets but actually they're they're actually not going to that many locations and that's kind of quite clever it also does a really good job of um reminding you that in this galaxy far far away life is pretty cheap and Mm. you know underpinning every revolution are lots and lots of dead bodies and you know fallen comrades and i thought it was really interesting how you would get to know a character for a little bit and then they would just be unceremoniously shot and killed like you know the 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 characters we meet in the prison uh, you know, you get to know their names and you get to know their kind of faces for a bit. And then, you know, the show isn't shy about just having them dropped when they're trying to do something heroic. And it's, mm. you know, it's, you know, unglamorous and unceremonious. And, and um, yeah, I thought that was a really, and also they're trying to keep the wage bill down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As it were. But um, uh, I, there was a moment in, I'm just going to go back to Andy Circus. I don't know if I'm kind of projecting this too much or thinking about it or maybe overthinking it, but there's a bit where, you know, the old guy dies and he has a kind of stroke and yeah. the doctor comes from, along. From uh, the guy from Alfred de Saint-Père. Uh, also the guy who, um, I don't know if you know this, he gives, uh, he is in the original Tim Burton Batman He's the thug that uh, Michael Keaton holds up and he says, who are you? And he's like, I'm Batman. That's, that's Oh, that I never realised that was him. That's no. amazing. If you watched uh, YouTube Easter egg like video breakdowns, <laughs> you'd know this. Um, but there's a moment when Andy Serkis, uh, and I think his performance in the next episode sells this better, but he finds out that they're not getting out. There's this like flicker on his face that he's kind of always known that. Mm. And that, like, he's suspected that, like, that is a possibility that could happen. And then he's hearing it. And then he's suddenly realizing the gravity of what is going to have to happen. And, you know, you see that in those scenes, the next episode where he's playing with, like, kind of Diego Luna. And Diego Luna is trying to kind of goad him into doing something. And you can see that Andy Circus is so uncertain, but also, like, realizes that he has to act. And. Mm. That's such an amazing thing to be done in a motion capture performance. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was all track that I laid for that joke. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. <laughs> There's a real commitment to the bit there. I thought if I'm going to do one episode in two years, I'll, I'll really go for it. Um, lastly, Ed, I've got one one final bullet point on my on my on my notes here, and um, people will know I've not been on the show for a long time because I made notes. Um, and this note just says, is this as good as Star Wars gets? Mm. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I think certainly in the realm of, I, as, a, you know, as we discussed, like, I haven't kind of watched all the television stuff, but I have dipped in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, this certainly is the best the television stuff has ever gotten. I think it's up there with a lot of the best movie stuff. I you know, I still love The Last Jedi and Empire a great deal. Um, and I think this does a lot of what I love in those movies as well. Like, it feels like it's it's a great adventure that you follow on with characters that you love, but it also is exploring interesting concepts. It also is, um, you know, just like rip-roaring entertainment as well. Um, I think it certainly has to be counted amongst 
the very best things that anyone has done with Star Wars as a as a franchise. Like mm. no question. I think it's it's definitely top tier of things Star Wars related. Yeah, I, I'd be inclined to agree. Um I think the 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 first two movies, the original uh, mm-hmm. trilogy for me are the the kind of the, the benchmarks really but this kind of deserves its place up there and it's weird that like the the disney period of of um star wars will seen be seen currently as like so piecemeal and patchy and and almost kind of like you know like it's being steered rudderlessly um into the kind of content sea but like you know the last jedi is an interesting film <laughs> it is mm. i mean like and it, as a as a as a star wars movie i think it's pretty extraordinary um but you know its position in the hierarchy is kind of weakened by the fact that they never followed it up with a sequel and it's that like kind of takes away a lot of it for me that that so much of the promise that it that it kind of offered was just squandered or walked back in you know the most shameless um mm. uh, crowd well, the wrong crowd pleasing way which is kind of upsetting but like also in the disney era the end of the clone wars cartoon especially the last episode is extraordinary <laughs> like that's kind of like the closest that the star wars animation stuff has come to being like experimental because that mm. i don't know if you i mean i the clone wars is something that like is very patchy and you know, you've got to watch a lot of stuff to get to the good stuff because it, you know, it takes a long time to figure out what it is as a show. It, it figures a long time. It takes a long time to figure out that it's not a show about Anakin and Obi Wan. It's a show about Ahsoka and the clones, essentially. And that show ends when you know they obviously brought it back after it was cancelled the first time in a pretty extraordinary way. And that is a great conclusion. And that that w- of the Disney stuff that has come out you know, since the the kind of merger, that's the only other thing that I would have anywhere near the top. But Andor just frankly embarrasses all of the other TV shows because it's made properly. Like, mm. it's, it is not a content and nostalgia delivery service. It is, it is concerned with things other than making you point at the screen and go, ah, yes, gulp shitto. <laughs> Yeah, I think if we're listing off the things in recent Star Wars that have been the most impressive, um, I think going to the pre-Disney era, I think you could probably chuck um, Gendy Tartakovsky's um, series, uh, his Clone Wars series mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, I think the lesson that people should be taking is if you want Star Wars to be good, you need to give it to people who have like a distinct vision of what they want to do in that universe. Mm-hmm. And accept um, that not everyone's going to like it, and that's okay. Yeah. Because that's how you generally end up with great things. Mm. If you if you take big risks and make big swings, you know they're not all going to hit. But when they do, you can get you know pretty spectacular things. And I think that that is what Andor is. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So thank you to everyone uh, for listening to this uh, special one-off episode of the show. Oh, we might do more episodes in the future. I still haven't quite figured out what we're going to do uh, with the show going forward. But Matt, it was absolute pleasure getting oh. to chat with you about star wars again at length yeah it was lovely to be back in the chair and thanks for having me on uh where can people find you online hey well um unlike in the old days you can find me doing um uh, actual play tabletop role-playing games on youtube over at the bad spot 
Um, so if you want to come on and listen to me talking to myself for close to 40 hours now, <laughs> um, um, then that's the place to do it. And I will offer there is heavy nerd warning um, content uh, abound. So be careful um, what you are kind of entering for because it's not just going to be like jokes about Andy Circus motion capturing things. <laughs> um, it's It's way more insufferable than that. Great. Uh, yeah, th- again, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we'll be back at some point with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bring back the old outro. Yeah. <laughs>